Coaches, before we get to the podcast today, just a reminder that you can check out my video breakdowns of local college teams at gumroad.com backslash coach Clotier, gumroad.com backslash coach Clotier. The first video was Augsburg University's transition offense. And the second video I've done or that I've broken down or I broke down was St. John's University's three out two in ball screen offense. Again, gumroad.com backslash coach Clotier. All right, coaches, uh, welcome back to a couple weeks off uh, with the summer basketball window ending. I needed to take, take a couple weeks away from it. Now we're jump, jumping right back in with uh, uh, Dave Flum from Eden Prairie. So, Coach, I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. First thing we always do is your coaching Wikipedia page. So tell us where you're from, where you played, <laughs> and what led you to Eden Prairie. Uh, well, I grew up in Cannon Falls. I graduated with 71 classmates, which is kind of funny when I tell kids that because, uh, you know, we have 750 graduating in Eden Prairie's classes. Uh, from there, I went to Gustavus, um, played basketball and baseball there, uh, went to Chaska, was there as a teacher and assistant coach for five years. Then I went to Watertown Mayor, uh, was head coach there for three years. Um, then I went back to Gustavus, was the assistant coach there for three years. And this will be my 15th year at Eden Prairie. So what is the biggest thing that you learned from your time at Gustavus that you're, that you're able to bring back to your, to your program now? Well, certainly from a coaching standpoint, Mark Hansen's been the head coach there forever and actually was head coach when I was there as a player um, or bench player, I should say. And um, what he gave me was the opportunity, the way he sets it up is um, gives lots of responsibility. So I ran the defense when I was at Gustavus. And so my three years there, um, what's interesting is the difference I think from college to high school is simply time. So my job was to coach defense and that was my job. So think about that in terms of the amount of time you have to prepare. Whereas now we're teachers as our, obviously our primary job. And then we somehow get to fit in the coaching part. Well, when you have 24 hours a day to think about defense, you get to, you know, hopefully become pretty good at it. And um, so we really, you know, I really give lots of the credit to the foundational pieces of everything that we've done with my experience of being the assistant coach there. And once again, um, we had really good defensive teams there and had a chance to to really focus on that more than certainly a lot of high school high school coaches have been able to because we just don't have the time. So the biggest long answer is time. That that's the biggest piece of having time to to concentrate on your your task. Don't want to beat the drum uh, too many times. I know you've been a lot of different with, I know you've been on Matt Bear's podcast and different interviews with different news outlets, but just real quick, talk about the, your 2020 team. First of all, how, just how special they were. And I, I got the opportunity to watch you guys play at Cambridge on a Saturday. Um, I tricked my wife and she could go to Target if I could go live scout for the first time all year. Now with film exchange, it's don't get out as much as I normally would. So I pretty much went to watch you guys, but also worked that we were playing them later in the week. But just talk about the special team that you had this past season and then how you guys process and dealt with not being able to have your section final. Yeah, well, obviously it was one of those um, seasons that is a dream season where everything happened to work together. Uh, we ended up, you know, we've called it the perfect season and not because we just have our record 28-0. Um, but everything came together. Our, our kids really bought into the love of playing for each other. And that's what you want in a program. And that was certainly a process. And the uniqueness was that we had four kids starting for three years. And obviously that doesn't happen, um, you know, 
anywhere, let alone 4A schools. And um, I think Princeton was actually maybe one that had uh, some 4,000 point scores or something like that. Um, but we had 4,000 point scores and um, that means that they've been playing together for a long time. And so in addition to that, it's not just that we were good players. They really played each of their roles to their strengths and knew exactly what those strengths were. Um, and that takes time when there was just that uniqueness of, from a coaching standpoint, is we knew all of our players' strengths and weaknesses because we coached them for three years, not just in practice, but how they performed in games. And um, what a unique advantage that was going into it. And with all that being said, it didn't mean that all of a sudden it was just going to work, but it did. There were lots of pieces that fell into place. And, um, from a coaching standpoint, it's going to be hard to believe, but there was not an instance of drama the entire season, which is shocking and impossible, but that's just the way that things worked out. And it wasn't just because we were winning guys just did what they want to do and had an absolute blast playing together and they loved each other. And um, that was great. So as far as the finish, of course, you know, everybody that had the season cut short was very disappointed. Uh, a lot of people have reached out saying that our team in particular, they felt the worst for, and I think that's probably fair because it was such a unique season and how frankly dominant we were. I mean, with the schedule we played and I think we had three games that were by fewer than 10 points um, and to be ranked nationally and all those different things, not to brag on our team, but we were obviously a little bit different than the rest of the teams. And I think that's uh, it was, that made that more challenging. With that being said, we, uh, we got to play and we got to experience going 28. No, we got to do all those things. Like I just feel really bad for the spring sports and those things. They never even got the chance to play it. So certainly looking at it from the positive standpoint that we got to play. I think it's very valid to say that you guys probably had the, was the toughest pill to swallow just because you guys were just a, just a juggernaut. I mean, it was just really fun from a coaching and a basketball lens watching you guys play and how well your team moved the basketball and how well you guys defended together. And we'll talk offense, defense here later, but clearly you guys were the, the epitome of a well-coached team, but also a, a team where the players just, the egos were checked at the door and those guys just did such a great job of just from the one game I watched. I mean, it was so evident that those guys didn't care who scored. Um, I think that you had your left-handed shooter. I'm drawing a blank on his name. I think he had like yeah, nine, three, nine threes. Yeah, Henry, yep, had nine threes that yeah. game or whatever against Cambridge's zone. And everyone yeah. on that team was excited that he was getting the points. And it was just a really cool group to watch. But uh, also, um, you had a great team, but I'm going to give you a little credit here. You were also named National Coach of the Year as well. So talk about what it was like receiving that award and just what that, what, what that meant for you uh, as a coach for all the time that you've put in. Well, first of all, I remember when I got the email, when I read the email, and I reread it a few times, and I'm, oh, I got nominated, then it said, you were named, and I'm like, all right, which one of my buddies took the time <laughs> to put this email together to just mess with me? Um, so then, of course, you realize you get national culture, I'm like, oh, that's, that's quite a significant deal, I mean, you know, you looked it up and like, is this for real? And the national coach of the year. So that's significant. Obviously that felt great and uh, still feels great. Um, the one thing though, that um, I think it really captures with it's my name on there, but without any question, this doesn't happen if we don't go 28. No. And what I mean by that is we tell our kids all the time, it's not about you and we serve others and in this particular instance, I got my name on there, but there's a 0% chance if we lose one game or if kids don't perform the way they do or our coaching staff doesn't put in all the extra work, all those things, then that doesn't happen. So it 
was a really nice consolation prize for us not being able to finish the season because it, I think, really, you know, gave lots of prominence to what this team did. Um, and in addition to that, then, uh, one of the coolest things for sure for me is thinking back of when we, you know, it was COVID time where there were all restrictions where we couldn't be in contact with each other. And um, some people organized a little drive-by parade and it was very um, meaningful and, you know, brought a tear to my eye with all the people that came by and got to, frankly, it felt the, the reason it brought tears to my eyes because we, we shared this together, um, this experience and uh, how fun that was for everybody. That's really cool. And uh, obviously you're giving a lot of the credit to your players, which I'm sure is deserved, but I mean, you've done a lot in your 15 years at Eden Prairie and have had a lot of successful teams. And I don't know exactly what your winning percentage is, but it's definitely <laughs> probably one of, the, <clears throat> one of the best in the state, especially in class 4A. Now you've established a really good program um, <clears throat> that's been successful year in and year out in the toughest conference, toughest section in the state. What are some of the standards that you have or goals that you have for your program or some of the, you know, the core values of the Eden Prairie basketball program? Yeah, so strangely, it, it doesn't start at all anything to do with basketball. I, I really believe that coaching is the second most important and significant thing other than being a dad. Um, we get to help teach lessons that no other profession gets to do. And I'm a fifth grade teacher and know how significant that is. But we get so many opportunities to teach because um, there's so many opportunities, uh, you know, whether it's discipline or hard work or it's not about you or having them serve others. Um, you know, so everything to me starts with the idea of we don't teach, um, you know, kids to be basketball players. We happen to have young men that happen to play basketball. And so to me, everything is the foundation of how can we teach, how can we um, do things the right way and uh, hopefully model for kids so that they have a chance for success in their lives. Um, so that's really the foundational piece is it's not about you and we need to serve others. That's, that's what we start with both from coaching. And uh, we talk a lot about from a coaching standpoint, being trans um, formational instead of transactional. And it's not anybody's fault. I think a lot of the times we as coaches, certainly me as a young coach, like how can I make this team win in return? Subtly that makes me look good. And that's important for me as opposed to transformational is me to serve you. I'm here to serve you now, not to get that confused with, um, that means I'm going to let you do whatever you want. And I'm going to just do, you know, what, feels good for you. When I mean service, I'm talking about keeping you accountable and having high expectations and making sure you're a good teammate. And, um, you know, I keep on saying it's not about you. And that's the one thing I really think that we get to do as coaches. Everything else in society is about, you know, how can you advance yourself or pleasures or whatever it is for you individually. But this is the unique opportunity and it obviously happened this year that when you can be part of something bigger than yourself and share it and have a common goal and make that happen. I don't know that there's anything else in the world in terms of a profession that allows us to do that. So it's, it's not obviously an X's and O's thing. It's um, you know, what, what can we do to ensure that we're doing things right? 
you do team building stuff throughout before or during the season, or you just really hammer home those expectations? I think a lot of it is expectations. We, you know, I've worked with doing some things like off, we, we make sure that we have a service project each year where we're serving some people or a group of people. Um, we also will do as many games, activities, things in the classroom as possible, you know, and that doesn't always happen, but just, uh, and like we'll play family feud. We'll do different things like that just to, to, to build some things there. Another thing that we've done is we have had Scott Savore. I don't know if you've heard his name before to come and speak to our team and do some team um, building with him. He's a sports psychologist and he's been very influential and helpful. Um, he, I would recommend he's definitely a guy you're going to want on a podcast at some point. He does a really good job and he's been very helpful in um, helping build our culture. That's awesome. Um, so within that, would you have any specific diving into your expectations or do you have any specific, I don't want to say rules. Cause that's like you said, that starts to be feel like transactional, but do you have any, like some sort of like, what, what are some of the big things that you just hammer home with your guys being a little bit more specific? Yeah. So, you know, the two things, like I tell them, I, I don't get upset very often, but the two things, if you want to get me upset are lack of effort and mental mistakes and pretty simple but those are two things you can have complete control over. And of course the mental mistakes aspect is actually encompasses lots of things, but the non-negotiable is the effort without any question. Um, and so as an example, I'm never going to get upset with you. If you dribble off your foot, I'm not going to obviously get upset with you if you miss a shot. However, your shot choice is something that's controllable and more mental. So that's something we would have a discussion about. Um, as the same thing is, you know, if you are positioning off the ball defensively and you weren't there, is that an effort thing or is that a focus thing? The reality is it's both those things. So now that's a non-negotiable we're going to have conversations about. So those two things kind of cover everything in terms of um, on-court stuff. And then it's pretty simple, um, you know, be respectful, be responsible. And that covers lots of things. And I'm not a big, you know, these are our rules. You can't do one, two, three, four. I like the idea of being able to be a leader for different kids in different situations. And there's lots of different things um, that come into kids' lives. So I'm not going to have a rule if you're late twice, you're benched for start the game because there's different circumstances for different kids. Um, certainly if a kid's never been late, you know, for the three years, and all of a sudden they are twice, what, you know, um, so I don't have any hard, fast rules of if this, then this, because you want to be able to handle each situation differently. Um, but being respectful and responsible kind of covers all of the you know big picture things as well. So I posted out that you're coming on here on social media last night and what a lot of people responded back with, they want to know about your game preparation. And it's something that you've already mentioned as well. You guys just have a grind of a conference schedule, obviously with your section as well. seems like half of the top 10 in class four, I seem to be in your section the last few years. And so um, I just want to talk about like, there's no off games for you guys had many haha on your non-conference schedule among other really tough teams. Uh, there's no off nights for you guys. So what goes into your game preparation on an, on an, uh, Tuesday, Friday, whatever the game, what, what, what is your guys as a coaching staff? And then you specifically as a head coach, what does your game prep look like? 
Yeah. So I think probably like a lot of coaches, we would, I would call it reverse engineering. We start with the section final in mind with the idea of making it to the state tournament and then work backwards. So what are the best teams in the section? Who are we going to have to prepare for? Who are we likely to play in that section final game? So we're going to make those teams, even during the course of season, our highest priority for sure. Um, and then work backwards. Um, and of course, then we're preparing for a week by week um, basis. And um, I do have a rule that uh, we don't put more than 10 minutes of prep time during the regular season into any practice on any opponent. So I'll put 10 minutes on the clock. And then if we, we stop it hard and fast for the most part um, with any opponent. So, and, and I believe that because during the course of the season, your, your team is far more important. You can't continue to chase who you play. Um, so we do a lot of prep though, in a mental standpoint by looking at film with her opponent. So that work is done in the classroom first. Um, we will spend most of our time in that is, you know, the strengths and the individual tendencies of players. We'll look at some sets and that sort of thing, but same thing. You keep on spending X amount of, they run this set, that set, and then they run those sets, you know, seven times in the course of the game. Is that really good use of your time? You spent 10 minutes of it on practice. I would argue no. That changes, however, come playoff time. So besides, in addition to the um, individual tendencies that we'd have for players, come playoff time, we're really then, then we're delving into the sets and the tendencies that they have or concepts that they run. Um, and we'll spend by playoff time a lot of time on our opponents and frankly even a month in advance we'll start okay we're likely to play this team this team is pretty unique that will likely play them or potentially play them in the second round and they run something we haven't seen before so we'll start implementing into our practices let's just say it's a one three one zone that maybe chaska runs a little bit that we haven't seen all year so we're going to start putting that in in case we see them as an example um, but back to the individual prep, it's almost all about individual tendencies. And shockingly, even in 4A basketball, and frankly, probably all the way up through the NBA, there are just dramatic tendencies of players, what their strengths are, and then how far away their weaknesses are. Like I'm amazed this year with it. We were able to do more prep work because, frankly, our team was quite good and prepared and there my voice is the same for three years so we got to do more prep work but boy you discover how many kids cannot dribble with their left hand or have no chance of going to finish to their left hand as an example so then we would be very clear if you allow him to get to his right hand you're coming out of the game you know it's that dramatic um and then we really focus on the three-point line and who can shoot who can make threes and not and so we just have a quick saying, a white, you're white on this player. White means tight. And that means you are not helping in any circumstance off of that player, as an example. So we'll identify certain players as white. We'll identify certain players as blue. That means loose. That means you're giving extra help. And the reality is almost every team has at least one guy we get to go blue on, meaning that we're not, we're going to give additional help off of them. Might not be that we don't ever guard them, but you know, instead of being in your gap where you're supposed to be, you can be an additional step closer to the ball or that sort of thing. So, what about as a coaching staff? Do you guys spend you know x amount of time watching film together, or do you guys have a lot of stuff in the back of your mind that you you will adjust to based on what you've seen in film? Stuff maybe that you don't communicate with your team. 
I would say 90 to 95% of what we do is all in film and breaking that down and having that that we share with the kids and we'll put those into clips. So if we can put individual tendencies of players into clips, um, we will do that. Um, and then being very cognizant, you don't want to have them. I mean, the more we teach, the more we're aware of our, our attention span with kids is less and less. So we've got to be very aware of it. We're not going to sit and have the board. So we try to get it snipped down to just the highlights of the players of tendencies of what they do. Um, so what I have done certainly for playoff time for the last two years, maybe three years, uh, and we've had enough coaches and volunteer coaches. So I might assign you, okay, you've got Shakopee. So, and I'll assign that like January 15th. So you've got the next six weeks. I want you to watch them live twice and you need to see them on film and have all the clips ready. And I want all of their tendencies prepared by, you know, March 2nd, which is when playoffs start. So then I'll have a different assistant for a different coat or a different team. And we've been able to do that for the last several years. And then, of course, in the background, I'm doing all of that, too. And then we compare those notes at a, as, a, as, as a staff um, or me one-on-one -on -one with a coach about, you know, okay, so now um, it turned out that we play Prior Lake in round two. So the coach that was prepared for Prior Lake, I would have met with them you know, before we even started playoffs, but then that night after we win our first playoff game, now we're sitting down, making sure we're completely prepared. All the clips are ready and we're ready to go and that sort of thing. So, you know, absolutely an advantage to have more coaches, but then um, to break that down. And then this year, frankly, I we did it to the state level too. Like who are we likely to play in the state tournament? So I had coaches doing that as well. And we had the luxury of being able to do that. And it was a reality that that was going to happen this year. So I wanted to be prepared. I love that. And it's, it's awesome. Like you said, you have assistants that are willing to be bought in and taking on and that you also give them the ownership and you empower them to take that on and have those teams where it's not just like you're driving the ship and everyone else has to follow exactly what you say. You're giving them that voice to get involved in scouting reports. I'm sure that you get, it, it's, you know, you know a lot about the game in your 15 years at Eden Prairie, but I'm guessing you probably have really good conversation with those coaches who maybe see it a little bit differently. No question. I mean, I would argue our staff and take me out of the picture. I, I'd put our staff up against anybody. And, and unfortunately, we just lost four of them. You know, we've had two of them that just took on head coaching jobs and one went with as an assistant and one had a job change. But um, just we've had fantastic coaches that are more than happy to dive in. And that's the whole idea of you go back to what are your philosophies and beliefs and it's to serve others. And as a coaching staff, that's what we need to do. So each coach and individual is serving then, you know, our entire team and um, excited to be able to do that. Talk about what a practice looks like for you guys. Uh, maybe not during the tryout window, maybe not as much towards the end of the year, but December, January, kind of right in yep. the you know middle part of your season. What does a, a normal Eagles practice look like? Yeah, so um, we certainly never go more than two hours. I, I'm a real, real firm believer in get the maximum amount of work done in the least amount of time possible. Um, and if you have anything that's dragging and um, slows practice down, that's that's really hard to continue to have any intensity. I, I'm just like, if we can get everything done with that we need to in an hour, we're going to do that. And this last year, we actually did a lot of one hour practices, believe it or not. Now that's with a very veteran team. 
And it was a little bit of uh, understanding of if you compete and get done what we need to get done, we'll shut it down just to keep you fresh. Um, next year's team, it'll be a lot different because we return nobody other than a couple guys that had played. So it's brand new and there'll be a lot more that we need to get done and accomplished. Um, so with that being said, you know, obviously we try to play with as much energy as we can. Um, we'll start like everybody does with some kind of a warm up routine and obviously with shooting stuff, but then we'll maybe unique to others is we'll break down then immediately. So we'll break down in a multiple in multiple ways. Uh, one of those is I will take the defense, um, by position. So I might take the perimeter defense and then my assistant coach might take post offense and then we'll flip flop. Then I'll take post defense and he'll take perimeter offense. Then we'll do team. I'll take the black team. So I'm doing team defense. He's taking the white team and doing white offense. And then we flip flop that. So that's probably, you know, I, that's usually about eight minutes, six to eight minute segments. So that right there between all that switching is, you know, 20 to 30 minutes of that foundational work. We'll try to get at least 10 minutes of individual work done each day. Um, you know, whether it's footwork or shooting or whatever we're doing. And once again, that might be a breakdown where I might take point guards, give another coach the wings, another coach the posts, that'll work. And then, um, then obviously we'll start competing. And in terms of, I just am a firm believer in everything you do, it needs to be because it's going to be applicable in a game and it needs to be highly competitive. You know, so if we're going, if I see a cool drill that somebody did, but there's no chance we're ever going to do that, why would you ever do that drill? And I think that happens a lot. I think that probably happens a lot with young coaches um, and it's not their fault. You, know, you just don't know, but like, is, when would you ever do this? I'll give you a quick example for that um, as I'm rambling here. No, this is um, great. I, no one wants to hear me talk. They want to hear the national coach of the year talk. Yeah. Um, everybody does three man weave. And my question to you is when you're doing the three man weave is why do you do the three man weave? When in the basketball game, do you do something like a three man weave? And the answer is you don't ever, I get it. You're getting a moving, you're passing. But what we do is three line passing. We just go down at the same concept, staying in your lanes and you pass it back to the wing, back, back, back. That's realistic. That's what you would do in a game. So, um, you know, that's, and I think I'd mentioned to you in an email, just getting maybe into something else, but the idea once again of what drills are you doing that benefit and are applicable. And then in addition to that, think, think about what you want, think about what you're doing and why you do it and put that time and intentionality into it. Um, so nothing wrong with three man weave, but just ask the question, why are you doing it? And then, so we just modify, yeah, we want to pass. Well, okay, this makes more sense. So we're going to do that. That's obviously a thinking part. And frankly though, I got that from Gustavus. That's from Mark Hansen. And that was our conversations all the time is you have to answer the question, why, why are you doing it? And don't just do it because you've seen somebody else do it. Then the other part with practices is the competitive part. Everything has to be competitive. Every shooting drill, everything we do, we are competing. And we talk all the time about, in the end, it's about winning, finding a way to win and make winning basketball plays. And so win the drill, be the best shooter in this drill. Uh, make sure that in the shooting drill, you're giving your teammate the chance to win the drill because you're a good rebounder and passer for that shooting drill. Um, 
And then, yeah, every, so if we want to work on screens, for example, we'll do something like a four on four on four drill and you get a bonus point when we see that um, a great screen is used and set. So then it becomes an emphasis. So what we'll do is if we're working on, let's say it's rebounding, instead of just doing a rebounding drill, we might do once again, a four on four on four drill. And, you know, the first team to get eight rebounds um, gets, you know, bonus point to win or whatever it is. So you're setting up what do you want to teach but putting it in a competitive drill. Love that. And I think what young coaches and all coaches should be able to get from you is for what I really like that you said is first off, you don't go two hours unless you have to go two hours. I think that a lot of coaches and out there, especially young coaches, like you mentioned, I know I was guilty of this too. It's like, all right, we have the gym from three 30 to five 30. We're going till five 30. It's like, well, heck, if you can get your stuff done to get in, get out, get kids home, they got a lot going on in their lives. But also the three man weave thing is great. You know, we, we, got rid of that altogether. We just have started going one-on-one just to start practice, right? They do a little yeah. warm-up stretch and like, let's go one-on-one, get your one-on-one groups. I'm like, play one-on-one for 10 minutes, get you warmed up. You're shooting, you're dribbling, you're moving. Um, yeah. And we've changed that because you're right. Like, when are you passing and run, running behind someone in a game? It's just, just something yeah. that I know we've all probably been coached up to run three-on-three. Like you mentioned in our emails, like a lot of guys just coach how they were coached, but it's something that if you really break it down, like you said, and you ask that why, it just is just something that you're just pretty much filling time. So that's great. Um, I want to dive into offense. Uh, I mean, you guys were just, obviously you were, you were talented, but I mean, you guys didn't have any high major kids on your team. You had, you know, some, you know, mid major, lower level division one kids, and then some NSIC kids, which are really good, talented basketball players. And when you're playing together, that's a really good team, but you didn't have, you don't have any kids going to the big 10. You didn't have anyone, you know, you had, Good, really good high school kids, but by no means were you having that top 150 kid or top 100 kid or whatever. So talk about your guys' offense philosophy and then also how you guys were so effective. Obviously, you had talented players, but there had to have been more than just they're good. So what was your offense philosophy and how did you guys play so well and move the ball so well this past year? Yeah, so a couple things. First of all, keeping things as simple as possible. We've heard that forever as coaches um, and see if I can articulate that a little bit. So you have to start with the number one thing you want is obviously a great shot on every possession. So if we start backwards, once again, um, and this is me changing over time for sure. It is so difficult to score in half court five on five. So what can we do to create opportunities? So it's not five on five, obviously then you want to do everything you can in transition. Um, so, uh, lots of, work lots of different things about secondary break all those different things but even then the idea is that there's still maybe five on five best how can you get it so that you can score in a way where it's not five defenders back um so that's first and then spacing is the next thing now we every coach says spacing and i get that and i'll we can talk till we're blue in the face with spacing you need guys that can make shots that's how you create spacing. If you have three guys on the floor that can't make a shot, you can stand them wherever you want. And you're not going to get any spacing. You need guys that can make shots. This, so then once again, to be at a state championship level, I think you need five guys that can score. Now, you can still be really good at different things, but I'm talking state championship level. Um, and then if you can have five guys that can make threes, of course, you're going to have spacing. 
the year before we had two guys on our, on the floor that couldn't make threes and our spacing was big. We had big issues. We had big problems. Um, we just had a hard time. Um, this year we ended up shooting 44% from the three point line as a team. And we had seven guys shoot over 40%. So you are going to obviously have spacing. I mean, that's just incredible, right? Um, now, that's not always going to happen. It's certainly not going to happen for our team this next year. So how do you create that space? You have to have guys that can make shots. So that comes back to the whole development piece. You've got to have guys on the floor that can make shots. Um, so if you can't create that space, now you got to get really creative. Now it's more of a challenge. All right, so then how can you create opportunities in transition and of course that starts with from a philosophical standpoint everything for us starts from the defensive end how can we get stops so that we can go in transition and score all right so last year's team though as simple as and then going back to being simple and this is just a thinking process all right so drake dobbs is unbelievable in transition like freaky good drake is not very good going to his left and I say that relatively speaking, he's plenty good going to his left, but he's not, he's amazing going to his right. So how can we get Drake on the right side of the floor so that he can go to his right hand? So we wanted to get him the ball in the slot on the right. And then I wanted John Henry, the lefty shooter in the corner on the same side. So now defense is automatically as Drake is going to get by his guy. Now you're going to make a choice. Are you going to help off John or not? So that's just that spacing piece to start. Then we put our post Austin Andrews in the left. Um, I called it the dunker spot. And then the other two shooters that were shooting 40% would be the trail on the left slot and then the left baseline. So now you've got spacing and you've got Drake going to his right hand. I know it sounds super simplistic, but if you can get things so it's simple, that's exactly what we'd want. So everything we would do if somebody's open and ahead, we'd get them up, pitch it up to the corners, and then getting the ball back to Drake ideally in that spot so that he can operate and play to his strength. That's another thing that has shifted for me is how once the season starts, how can you play to your strengths and then make sure that kids are not doing anything to their weaknesses. So now that I can share this, Connor Christensen cannot dribble with his left hand. So we made it clear that Connor, you get to your right hand. If you can't go to your, if you're forced to your left, shoot it, pass it, just don't even do it. And, you know, we didn't know that as a sophomore. We didn't know that as a junior. You're still developing. But by the time the senior year came, let's not fight this anymore. Let's just play to your strength. So shoot it with a great amount of confidence. If you get to right, do it. If not, move the ball. Um, so if you get to know your personnel and kids that well, not all the other coaches know those things. Just playing to your strengths and then putting kids in a spot. So believe it or not, that was a lot of our offense, what I just described. <laughs> so get it in transition and go. And we had the unique players to do that. And then we certainly run sets as well. And all those sets, once again, are how can we get our best shooters in the spot that they feel most comfortable? So my assistant, Nick Round, does a phenomenal job. He runs all the sets. I don't like running sets. I don't like doing it in practice. He's excellent at it. So that's his baby, and he does a great job with that. So anytime there was a dead ball, we always would run a set. We would never run a set if it's off if in live ball, you know, off of a made basket, you know, rebound, transition, steals, obviously we would never run a set, but on a dead ball, we'll always run a set, but that's the only time we'd run a set. Otherwise we just go into our motion concept and what I described of what we do in our transition. Then we would work into, you know, we've got some more, you know, um, you know, concepts and details of our half court motion that we would run. But with that being said, 
spacing is the number one piece once we get into that piece without any question. And then of course you need people that can make shots or it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. And I think that's why the game's changed so much with post play in the back of the basket is that clogs things up a little bit. But if you have like Austin Andrews that we'd love to put him in the post and then we just have four guys space out and Austin one-on-one in the post is fantastic and you won't be able to stop him. But if you have Austin one-on-one in the post and you have two other guys on the floor that can't make shots, Austin's going to have a very difficult time scoring. I love that you mentioned not running sets on live balls. I think that a lot of times when, you know, teams have maybe had a, bat, a possession or two that have been empty, coaches really overstep and they'll get their hands into it. And I just think that kills the flow of your offense. It's like when things go – kids see that too, right? When kids go south, things go south, and maybe you've had a turnover and then a bad shot, right? And then all of a sudden you just, all right, e-break it and run your set. Like kids feel that, and I feel like that just – maybe you score on that set, but long-term within that game, I think that doesn't build the confidence in your guys that they can make plays on their own. So I love that you mentioned that. And I also think that's good that you run that set on dead balls. That's something that we need to do about – our coaching staff has talked about that too is – I mean, you mentioned you got Division One point guard – who, you know, isn't as good in the half court, right? And so you were the best, one of the best teams maybe in state history, if not the best team in state history. And you got admittedly, so it's hard to score in the half court five on five. Yeah. And so I think understanding that having those, you know, maybe it's, I don't know how many sets you guys have. And Joe Berger has like 1,200, it sounds like, at Edina sets that he runs. But, uh, um, you know, if it's your five to 12 maybe sets that you can run on dead balls throughout a game, I mean, be ready for those because that is tough when the defense is set. I do want to build off of, you know, so you talked about your transition spacing, getting Drake to his right hand or your point guard to their strong hand, best shooter ball side corner. What about once, okay, defense is set, what's our first second action off of the, okay, defense is set, now what are we looking to do? Yeah. So, you know, that comes back to, I'm a big concepts. So what kinds of shots do you want? Um, And early on in my coaching and coming from Gustavus, I always felt like the thing that we had the um, greatest strength was anytime the ball is in the middle of the floor and specifically any action that we can get a high low out of. And that certainly is something that I still believe in, but with that being said, then you've got to evolve and change to what your personnel is. Um, so I'm a big concept guy, like I said. So now it's shifted, though, <clears throat> and I don't know the exact study. I'm sure that it's out there. But we want to get uncontested threes. And how you get uncontested threes are inside-out threes. So everything we can to get inside-out. So I'm at least I tell my guys this and maybe they'll listen or not, but to the podcast, but um, I make up numbers in terms of, all right, currently we are shooting 11% higher on inside out threes than catching on the wing and having to, to turn and shoot. So why would we continue to take this shot as opposed to get into the paint? So it's an inside out. And then I do talk a lot about, so why is it a higher percentage? One is you're stepping into the shot. Two is when you practice, Unless you've got three people, how often do you practice where you catch it and turn? It's almost always an inside-out pass. There's a variety of reasons I think that it's higher. Um, But it is significant. that So we try to get the ball inside. Either it's a post-touch or off a dribble and then get inside-out threes without any question. That's a a huge part of what we do. Um, We also basically – Think about we have three on one side of the floor, two on the other side of the floor is kind of how we keep our spacing. I've evolved that over time instead of just the 
always say 12 to 18 feet apart. How, that's pretty hard for high school kids. So how can we manipulate it so that it makes sense? So when there's three on the left side of the floor, for example, these are the concepts that we're trying to accomplish. And think about it just in terms of when you play three on three basketball, now that you're on the three man side, what are all the things you do if you're just playing three on three? These are the kinds of concepts that we'd want. On the two man side, same kind of concept. These are, what are the things you do when you just play two on two basketball? These are the concepts that you want. And then we talk about if the ball goes from the three man side to the two man side, what are actions that we would want? So for example, if that happens, obviously we would love to have some kind of a back screen. Um, and we have a rule that if the ball goes over your head, you have to screen out. So you're going to back screen and it might become a flex action on the three man side, as an example, as the ball left your side. If you're on the two man side and the ball is skipped to the opposite side, what are you going to do? Well, your number one thing is obviously your spacing part, but you might then most likely you're going to set a fade screen on that side as an example. Um, so everything builds off of spacing first, but then we want to give them parameters as to where they are on the floor and what concepts are you likely to do with, depending on where you're on the floor. So that's an evolution of me coaching in the sense of, okay, we're all 12 to 18 feet apart. Make sure you keep your spacing. Well, that's really hard for kids. So we have to give them more parameters. Um, and we don't want to control it where we're running point A to point B to point C, but at the same time, there has to be some parameters and concepts so that they have a fighting chance. So they're not just standing there staring at each other and knowing, not knowing what to do. So we do break it down in concept. I'm just a big concept, um, but it all builds off getting great shots. So if we want inside out threes, when the ball is here on the two man side and you catch it, what's your number one objective? My objective is to get to the paint and get all the way to the paint. If I can't get that, then I'm looking to create an inside out three for somebody. And then you see same a, thing. Yeah. Well, sorry. You used to be a pref professional defensive coach. So um, that offense stuff is great. I, I love the idea of concepts and keeping things and breaking down the three side and the two side. Um, but I want to hear about the defensive side. Cause I feel like that's, you know, it sounds like that's definitely where your strength is at or something that you've obviously were, like you mentioned, a professional defensive coach. Uh, when he read us Davis, so uh, or that's where all your time was um, allocated when you were there. Talk about some of your um, defensive philosophies, your guys' defensive principles, and then what are your non-negotiables? You already mentioned a little bit with like the mental be focused and work and give good effort or work hard. What are some of your non-negotiables, and what is your guys' defensive philosophy? Yeah, so obviously the number one objective, same thing. Just start with what what is the objective? Well, the objective is to you know, make them take a contested, highly contested, difficult shot, you know, no uncontested shots and obviously, or turn them over and make them do some things that they don't want to do and not feel comfortable with everything you can to make the other team as uncomfortable as possible. But if we work backwards from, we're going to give zero uncontested shots. That's the, that's our defensive foundation. Now, how realistic is that? It's not that realistic, but that is the goal. We want to go the entire game with zero uncontested shots. And so then start backwards. What, and this is that thinking part, what allows for uncontested shots? Number one is turnovers. And so everything actually, believe it or not, from a defensive standpoint, starts on the offensive end. And really from the offensive end, I think everything starts from the defensive end, like we said, our objective is we don't want to play five on five. We want to score before they have five guys back. That starts with everything you do defensively. 
Same thing from the offensive stand or defensive standpoint. Everything is dictated what happens the prior possession. So if we turn it over, live ball turnover, we have almost no chance. Certainly if it's a one-on-oh, we have no chance, right? So continuing to build on that, you can't have live ball turnovers. Um, and then any kind of bad shot is going to oftentimes lead to a defensive run out, rebound, and going the other way. So if we say we want no uncontested shots, let's start with how do other teams get uncontested shots? And to me, that's where it all starts is what happens on the offensive end. So to prevent uncontested shots, we can't turn the ball over. We can't take bad shots. Okay. So let's assume that we get that. The next thing is we have to play five on five basketball defensively, right? So we just talked about how hard it is to score in five on five. We have to play five on five on the defensive end. Just have to. So what does that mean? Once again, no uncontested or no turnovers, live ball turnovers, bad shots. You have to sprint back. And then the next piece of it is the ball is the most important thing on the floor by far. I ask kids about that all the time. And we'll start out, you know, first day of practice tryouts and it'll be some scenario where it's a three on two and they score uncontested. And I'm like, I hate the idea of, you know, whose man is that? Like, it's your man. They scored. It doesn't matter whose man it is. And so that's where the ball is the most important thing by far. So anytime that anybody's pointing, no, that's your job. It's I, we'd way rather have two guys go at the ball than nobody. Three guys go at the ball than nobody. Then, yeah, of course, the ball moves, and then the next guy is going to go to the ball. So the ball is the most important thing on the floor by far, and it's not close. And I've seen lots of clips, and I think I emailed this to you, just watching the Toronto Raptors and how they defend and how they all rotate. And clearly that's a concept that they have, that it doesn't matter who just contest. And it's not who gets the uncontested shots or who it's against. It's that they get them. And so – you. We do lots of competitive drills where we scramble defensively to and have that concept that it's – and then that all works back to that philosophy that we started. It's, it's about – it's not about you. It's about doing things together and serving others, and then you can build that into it doesn't matter. Your teammate fell down. They made a mistake, whatever. Your job is to go and contest that shot. So that's by far the next most important thing. Um, this is something we just shifted to this year, and this might be too revealing, but it goes back to that idea. So Drake Dobbs arguably is the best ball handler I've ever seen, yet he was dramatically better with his right hand. So if that's if he's the best that I've ever seen and he's better with his right hand, what does that mean for most other kids? So we really have shifted trying to take away kids strong as simple as that is and coaching travel basketball in fourth grade get on us we really have made that a major point of emphasis is making sure that we don't let individual players play to their strengths so everything always works opposite right so we're like offensively we're just going to play to our strengths let's make sure that we do something so the other team is not comfortable with what they want to do um, and that also goes into the scouting piece and those different pieces, but um, do whatever you can to not let the other team play to their strengths. Um, and that gets right down to the individual tendencies. Um, we, then we really do talk about what are contested shots and uncontested shots. So are, if you're close to somebody and you, you know, 
your hands are down, obviously that's not a contested shot. If you're close and your hands are up, is that contested? Kind of. Contesting means getting up and after they leave their feet, you need to leave your feet to contest that shot. Um, because it's just way too comfortable and easy, specifically from an inside out three if we're giving up that people can shoot comfortably. So we'll do everything we can to run them off that three point line then too. And we'll be actually pretty happy if they shot fake and take one dribble and shoot a 17 footer. If that one's uncontested, not that we would want that, there should be another player coming out to contest, but I would way rather have that than a comfortable three as an example. So that's kind of some rambling and things. I don't know if you want to dig into any of that. Yeah, I know that was – I wrote a ton of notes down. I mean, we're, uh, we're an offensive-heavy team uh, with, with what we do. We play fast in transition, uh, and, and we get a lot of our baskets in transition. It's funny you say that about the who's guy concept because I would say, I mean, half dozen times a night, we'll go down, a team will score, and we'll just come right back the other way, we'll go score. And everyone, like, pointing, like, oh, who's, who's guy is that? It's like, it's all of your guy. You guys got to get back in defense. So I think that's just a great concept. I know something that we need to hammer home more with, more with our guys is, you know, we try to do scramble stuff as well, but really driving home that point, like it doesn't matter. It, who, who, it doesn't matter if your guy got beat. Now it's your guy to rotate and then you got to scramble out of it. So I think that's a good concept um, to have. I want to talk about your guys' matchups defensively. Um, how much thought and or um, emphasis do you put on who's guarding who or because you like to it's so important to have one on the ball and you're scrambling do you not really care if Drake's on this guy or John's on this guy or whatever the case may be do you um, do you have set matchups that you live and die by or do you just kind of have it as like a template to start a dead ball possession yeah so a couple <clears throat> things there first of all I always find it fascinating when coaches college coaches anybody like this player's a positionless player meaning it's like it's a negative thing. Here's in between. Well, I love from a defensive standpoint the versatility of guys that can guard more than one spot. So um, I think it's very much a benefit. And then when we talk about numbers, like this player can play this, he's a two, he's a three, he's a four, whatever. The only number that matters to me in those things is who can you guard in those numbers. And then offensively, we just want you to be a basketball player. I'd love the idea if you are multiple things so defensively in, in this uh, philosophy standpoint I value well toughness and then versatility are the two most significant things to me defensively so if we can have guys that can guard multiple spots that is so important and that's the reason that's really important is that we actually do lots of switching um and that has changed from year to year about how much we do it and not. And then we will actually have, okay, our best defender is going to be on their best player. And that player is never going to switch off of that player, no matter what. Okay. Cause we feel that highly valued either about our defensive player is that much more elite than the next guy, or we feel that strongly about that offensive player. But um, otherwise, and then we might say things like, you can switch on to that player, but you can never switch off of that player. So let's say that you are guarding the other team's best player. You're never going to leave them. But let's say he receives some kind of a screen. The player that was guarding the screener can also switch. So in some sense, now there's two guys on that one best player, at least for a moment, and that's fine. And then you recover back. Um, so we, are, we do that specifically, too, about, you know, their elite players. Um, but we do break it down with, by position, who can switch and not, but we go with the idea that we start every year with it and there's no switching. 
no switching at all in practices. But then as time evolves, we certainly allow and encourage switches, especially when it's personnel driven, like once again, switching on to their best player, because another thing I'll say is uh, if we're wearing black, their team's wearing white. If you see a white come clean, come, you have to switch, right? If there's a screen or whatever, or it's a, even just a basket that you have to switch. Um, so we do lots of switching and I am a firm believer in it's not so much the mismatch that gets you beat, but it is the uncontested shot that gets you beat. Um, with that being said, if we have a mismatch then and something happens, now we've got a post um, being guarded. Or we have a guard on a post and it is a mismatch. We'll yell out ice, meaning isolated, give me extra help on the weak side and that sort of thing. So we'll have calls when that sort of thing happens. Um, so to answer that question, we have we start out with matchups with who we want on who for sure. Um, and then we will be able to, you know, really dive into who and how often are we willing to switch them on or off. Like if it's a blue player, we don't really care who's guarding them. If it's one of their best players, we might signify that I want only one of these two guys on them um, as much as possible. But then the switching part also then talk, goes back into what we talked about in terms of rotations and scrambling that also works a lot easier then because you're used to playing that it doesn't matter who you're guarding. So those, all those concepts kind of work together. So if you're a team that never switches, I think scrambling becomes an issue because you're not used to that. If you switch all the time, you have to be versatile enough to guard multiple spots. And if you can guard multiple spots, there's a much stronger probability that you're going to be able to play for us. So it's, um, I view it as a very positive. Once again, if you're positionless, then if you can guard multiple spots or you have a better chance of playing. I agree. I'm right on board with you. I think that you, you know, it, it is hard to scramble if you're, if you're like, all right, I'm guarding 23 this game, you're guarding 31. And then you kind of get, I think that lead can lead to easy and uncontested shots. Last question here. And we'll keep it in the defensive bubble. Pick and rolls is obviously a big part of the game in 2020. And I'm sure you see a lot of teams run high ball screen stuff or, you know, the, the traditional Euro ball screen continuity. What is your guys general philosophy on, or what coverage are you guys uh, main? I'm sure you have more than one, but your main ball screen coverage against uh, pick and roll. Yeah. So what we'll do to start each season as of this moment, there are basically six different ways that we can defend it. And, you know, ranging from icing it to the side, to switching, to jamming, whatever it is. Um, and we'll practice those things. So it'll oftentimes be dictated, frankly, by personnel on the other team. So if there's a dynamic point guard that can get into the middle of paint, but he can't shoot it very well, we're going to more likely jam the ball screen or we'll call it gap. We're just going to go underneath everything and just make sure we keep everything in front. Um, if it's, they do a lot of uh, pick and pop, then we would definitely have a lot more of the jam. So we don't let that screener go free. So a lot of it is what they do in personnel and we'll get into, and our guys have generally been smart enough so the Edina, for example, how they do different sets and actions, we're going to defend it one way. If we're playing against somebody else that just primarily goes high ball screens, we're going to play it a different way. We also will determine where it is on the floor, if it's in the middle of the floor versus on the side of the floor. Um, and then the other piece that we would take into consideration how we defend it is how, like I mentioned, if this player's really good getting downhill to his right, well, no matter what, we're going to stay on his right and force it back. So it might be 
icing it back to the left. It might be then if they go that way, it's going to be a switch because we're comfortable with our big on that point guard because he's not very good going back to his left. So we take all those things into consideration. So I honestly, I wouldn't say that we have a default one, although um, we like to teach it with the idea of trapping it first, just because that um, gives you an aggressive attack on how we want to pursue it. Whereas I think if we start out with just switching, I think that's just way too comfortable. We want to be way more aggressive with the attacking of it first, especially if it's on the side of the floor. I think it's a little harder in the middle of the floor, but we want to make sure that as much as we can, going back to that concept of not letting teams be comfortable with what they're doing, make them do something different. And I think if you can uh, attack them uh, at that ball screen point of the, at the point of the ball screen, I think that's generally uh, better. Um, so that's where we start with a teaching standpoint with both the guy on the ball and guarding the, the screener. Coach, that's great stuff. Uh, I wrote down, I got two pages of notes here. Um, that's really good stuff. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I know you've, uh, uh, been busy and I know it's been, uh, with your season this past, you're doing different, different sort of media related stuff. I'm glad you're able to find some time here to come on and talk. Uh, like I said, one of the best, if not one of the best, best coach in the state, obviously recognizes national coach of the year this past year at 28 and no team that, um, as far as I can see would have was probably was the best team was the best team in class four and unfortunately weren't able to play there. But I just think that your philosophy, your coaching philosophy and the stuff you hear you said here today is beneficial to coaches at all level. Um, so I appreciate it. Great stuff. Uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah. And thanks for doing what you're doing. I just think it's great that, um, you know, I, Somehow, all of a sudden, I'm, we're getting older, um, and now I'm like one of the <laughs> more veteran coaches, and I still look up to the coaches that have been around for a long time. Um, with that being said, anything we can do to expand and make all of us better coaches, in turn, that makes um, our kids in a better position to have success and have joy and teach them life lessons. And the more we can share as a community to make our, not to get too, you know, our prophetic, but our, our world a better place. I think it's just great. I, I love what you're doing and let's share ideas and um, not, and hopefully there's some stuff in here that's beyond the basketball piece, which is what we as coaches is far more significant than anything we can do related to basketball. Thanks coach. Again, I appreciate it. Um, really good stuff. Uh, this, this would be a, a must listen and hopefully a rewind for a lot of people. So thanks coach. Thank you.